Specialty Story, session number 57. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week. This week, I have a great interview with a Palm Critical Care Physician. A Palm Critical Care Physician. I had a great discussion with Dr. Tom Bice, who's been out of fellowship now for four years. He practices in an academic setting at UNC in North Carolina. We start the conversation by finding out what drew Tom to critical care medicine. So I knew that I wanted to do a little bit of everything and because I've never been able to just decide on one topic just as long as I can remember and have always had a little bit of at least mild to moderate ADD. And so knew that sort of like internal medicine where you get to touch a little bit of everything and or actually emergency medicine early on, I, I hadn't decided. And I didn't really enjoy in emergency medicine the people showing up at 3 a.m. with significantly non-emergent problems, even in like first and second year of med school where we got a little bit of exposure to that. So when I focused more on internal medicine, I was rotating sort of through my first wards rotation, both in surgery and then medicine, and realized that all of the patients, all of the disease processes, all of the things I remember learning about in pathophys and pathology the really cool, really sick people ended up in the ICU. And so I thought, all right, well, that's kind of cool. Maybe I'll focus more on that. And what really cinched it for me was my OB rotation, of all things, where a young 26-year-old lady with sickle cell came in at 29 weeks, just totally septic and crashing, went to emergency section ended up in the unit for several days, intubated, septic shock, got Zygris back when that was a thing. And, you know, here I was, third year med student, and I was the one from our team sort of rounding on that patient. And I just, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And that, that attending from OB is actually one of the people who wrote one of my letters for residency even. And it was just, it was sort of, I was hooked right away. I just love the excitement of the physiology and the sort of needing a broad swath of knowledge about the various systems. So so it's interesting you, you had that kind of divergence of emergency medicine versus internal medicine, potentially looking more at fellowship training through internal medicine. A lot of students go into emergency medicine or look at emergency medicine thinking it's going to be that always on, always high acuity kind of thing. And we've had an emergency medicine physician on here before. He's like, nah, that's about 5% of the cases. <laughs> right. So it, it was uh, really the acuity yeah. that drew you towards what you're doing now. It was. And I was, I was sort of lucky. You know, I, in med school, our, um, our dean liked to sit down with everybody and, or I think it was, I guess it was like the associate dean for students and sort of get an idea where people might want to be, 
identify as a mentor or someone for them to work with and would sort of make sure that people were picking something that made sense. And so, you know, I was my view of the ICU when I started explaining it to him, I said, it's sort of in my mind, like ER light in the sense of without the trauma aspect, because I didn't really care about the trauma part. And he said, well, it's really more ER heavy because it's all of the critical care, all of the really, really sick people. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, that actually makes even more sense. So it was it was sort of that, you know, knowing that you always have to have to have a little bit of everything and and that, you know, patients are going to definitely need you when they come to see you, which can be not always the case in emergency medicine, as I'm sure they will be (laughs) quick to tell you. So talk about the patients. What sort of patients are you seeing, seeing diseases are you treating? Yeah, so we, I'm at a, obviously a large academic medical center. So we have different ICUs for all the different patient subtypes. We have, I work predominantly now in the medical ICU and, but I'll end it with us. So we have, you know, there's the cardiac ICU that sees like acute STEMIs and cardiac arrests that go through what we're now doing is normothermia, I suppose, or essentially cooling and rewarming. Mm. All the STEMIs go through there. And we have a neuro ICU, so they see stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, seizures, uh, a lot of the neuromuscular acute problems, Guillain-Barre, myasthenic crises. Then there's the surgical ICUs with a general sort of trauma surgical ICU, which sees all the trauma. And then a cardiothoracic ICU, where I actually spent the first two years out of fellowship, and they see all the post-cardiac surgery, all the post-thoracic surgery, and so that's in addition where like all of our LVADs go through there. So I got a little bit of exposure to all of that as well, both during and right after fellowship. And then essentially, if you're really, really sick and you are an adult and you don't have any of those problems, then you come see the medical ICU. And so we end up seeing patients with predominantly with sepsis and septic shock of some kind, but also, you know, acute liver failure patients, drug overdoses, problems that you just can't really figure out what's wrong with someone, but they look real bad. They come to the medical ICU and we sometimes identify that they need to need to go to one of those other ICUs later, but we get to sort of be the triage if we can't figure out what's going on with them, but they're sick and need advanced care. So, and I suppose what sort of identifies all those patients is need for some kind of fixing of deranged physiology. So whether they need vasopressors because their blood pressure is low, or they need mechanical ventilation because they have respiratory failure, those types of things sort of define who, who comes to the ICU most places. The other ICUs that you mentioned, so you have the cardiac ICU, the neuro ICU, as a critical care medicine doc, a palm critical care, can a palm critical care doc staff those other ICUs or are there, because I know there's neurointensivists and I'm assuming cardiologists have their version of intensivists that are in the ICUs as well. Yeah. So it sort of depends on where you go. In academics, less so because like you said that like neurointensivists actually tend to go through either neurology or emergency medicine and then do neurocritical care the ctICU the cardiothoracic ICU was one where they have used a bit of everyone 
So anesthesia, critical care, because they're used to the anesthesia side and the surgical side of things. A cardiac ICU, one of the guys cardiology, and then did uh, pulmonary and critical care too. And then I did pulmonary and critical care. And we all, there were five of us that staffed that for a couple of years until they ended up getting more anesthesia people and my division needed me more. Um, so they, we sort of worked out that I came back. But you you definitely get training during fellowship because you're required to do so many months of ICU that you you can go and work in any kind of ICU that's necessary. I did a lot of moonlighting during fellowship and at the bigger sort of still academic but community-based academic programs, it's much more the intensivist rounds on all those ICU patients in whether they're in neuro or cardiac and still provides all the critical care just with some of the specialty consultation for, you know, like cath lab. We don't do that and things like that. So describe a typical week. So when I'm on service, a typical week is I, we have nighttime coverage by a different intensivist. So I'm essentially on from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. for seven days. And with the weekends for now, we still have, uh, we still have, I, I take call at night for those, but our, you know, I see is big enough. We actually have two attendings on at a time. So it's, we split that between the two of us every other day. We, you know, we round, I try to keep rounds short because no one likes to round interminably. And you, there's a lot of work that needs to get done. There's procedures that need to happen. There's consults that need to be seen and just generally activity that needs to happen for your patients because we don't have the luxury of time that you sometimes get on floor patients. And so we, we will do that and then typically round again in the afternoon, late afternoon, sort of right before we all sort of sign out for the day to ensure we sort of have followed up on everything and that, you know, whatever action plans have needed, have needed to happen have happened. And just to sometimes gather what admissions have come in through the day as well. For procedures, how procedure heavy is the specialty? It's a lot of procedures. And I say that with the caveat that to some extent you can do as many or as few procedures as you want. Just depends on how hands-on you like to be. But if you really don't like procedures, then it's probably not the specialty for you. You know, we, especially with the pulmonary side of things, obviously we do thoracentesis and chest tubes. And then the critical care will do chest tubes and intubation and central lines and lumbar punctures and essentially most things short of sending like to IR for percutaneous drainage of abscesses and things like that. And frank surgery that we usually defer that to the uh, surgeons. But some of my colleagues do percutaneous tracheostomy and, and uh, at bedside. Some of them do peg tubes at bedside. And uh, so it's sort of a, a bit of that. But then those of my colleagues that don't do that, you know, there's other resources in the hospital to have that available. So it's a bit of a being able to do as much or as little as you you like, though you do need to be able to handle central lines and intubation and that kind of stuff. 
do you feel like you have enough time for family and outside life? I do. It's why I chose academics as opposed to private practice, actually. I think that I, you know, I, I probably would have enjoyed private practice critical care for about uh, maybe two, three years, just sort of always doing something. But I really enjoy that, you know, I do about 12 weeks of ICU time a year. And the rest of my time is, is non, non-clinical, so doing research. Though I, my focus is clinical research, so it's still patient-focused. But I, you know, the grind of seven days for 12 hours is not constant. But even with that, when I get to come home, I'm home. And that's really nice. This has that advantage of, of shift work. And I would say most of critical care is moving that direction around the country as well. There's a generally recognized shortage of people that are critical care trained. And, you know, most of the hospital quality folks would prefer that there was a critical care trained person in the hospital 24-7. We could have a whole other podcast about whether that's necessary or not. But they, they do recognize that it's, it's useful to at least have someone laying eyes or hands on them once a day. So, but most of the places, at least in our state that I'm aware of, it's very much a, a day group and a night group. Um, and, you know, you rotate between the two, but you're on when you're on and you're not when you're not. So it's um, it's a pretty, pretty easy to maintain a little bit of balance that way. What does the training path look like to get to finally being attending as a poem critical care doc? Yeah. So there's a few different options now that even to stay in academics, when I started my fellowship, essentially you know, knowing that I wanted to keep doing research and do, and stay in academics, doing internal medicine residency and then a critical care fellowship only, which is two years of a fellowship after, sorry, three years of internal medicine residency. So then two years of critical care only wasn't a viable option for people to stay in critical care and in academics doing research. Now it actually is. And so that's one option. For one extra year, you do pulmonary as well, which I think is mostly determined on whether you like clinic or don't like clinic. People who do critical care only tend not to have clinic, obviously, as there's no ICU uh, (laughs) follow-up per se. But it gives you something if you enjoy having some of that longitudinal relationship with patients, then you get to do a little of both. And so I, I have a pulmonary clinic as well, I have started to shift a lot of it towards my research interests and clinical interests, which are patients with prolonged mechanical ventilation and sort of home mechanical ventilation or, or things like that. But I still have that flexibility to maintain those relationships with patients while then also doing the acuity of the ICU work. So, And that's three years after internal medicine residency, so, so six years total after med school. Does doing just the three plus two, just the two of critical care, does that hinder future job opportunities? It doesn't really, although it just depends, I think, on what you're looking for. It, but there are plenty of places that would be looking for people to do ICU work. Obviously, you couldn't go to a place that would 
and join a pulmonary and critical care group because they would want people probably to also do pulmonary. But in terms of places where you'd end up hospital employed, that there would really be no particular disadvantage to hiring a critical care fellowship only. In fact, again, it's they actually do more pure ICU time clinically than pulmonary and critical care does during their fellowship because we also have to do or had to do nine months of pulmonary, though some of that is overlapped with ICU time. So, yeah. How competitive is it to match into pulmonary critical care? It is, it's getting somewhat more competitive, though it is in no, it's not cardiology or GI, let's put it that way, <laughs> or oncology. So, we get very competitive applicants every year at our program, and it's, competitive enough that you know requires some degree of forethought and it, it's certainly helpful to have some exposure to research if you're going to an academic type program but it's like i said it's not cardiology and gi so you don't have to have already attempted to resolve heart disease in order to get in so do you see any negative bias towards osteopathic Physicians in the palm critical care world? No, I can 100% say no. In fact, a couple of my absolute favorite attendings from residency were DOs that did pulmonary critical care, and we we've interviewed plenty of DOs. I mean, it it seems as just another way of getting the same training. So, I know our our own program certainly doesn't see that as a as a fault and. Uh, I've not heard of that being a downside. So, good. Are there any other further opportunities to to subspecialize once you're palm critical care? Yes, there are. Though erring more on the pulmonary side than the critical care side, but under pulmonary, there's further subspecialization in interventional pulmonology, which again would be, I think, as the name implies more procedure-based and more interventions. So a lot of the more advanced bronchoscopy, including like endobronchial ultrasound, you know, biopsying non-invasively through bronchoscopy, doing more advanced stenting of the airway, that kind of thing, a lot of lung cancer treatment and evaluation. There are no formal, like through, through the NRMP, matching program programs for like lung transplant, but that there are a few places that offer fellowship and subspecialty training in that. And that's general. There's, as with everything, I think subspecialization continues to evolve. There aren't formal training programs, but emphasis or sort of subspecialization in pulmonary hypertension and the variety of treatments that has developed in recent years. And then the focus in sort of interstitial lung disease or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and the differences that that can evolve. But those are not not set training programs, but certainly niches within pulmonary medicine that uh, sort of require, as those are burgeoning fields, more sort of experience and training. A common question that I ask is, what do you wish primary care doctors knew 
about your job, but I'm going to assume that you don't have a lot of interaction with primary care docs other than writing your <laughs> discharge summaries. And you don't even uh, discharge from the ICU anyway. I, we don't a lot. We do sometimes because as anyone any day, uh, anymore can tell you at an academic center, sometimes if the whole hospital's full, you're just still have the floor patients in the ICU. So yeah. we do discharge from time to time, but we like to keep that to a minimum. The pulmonary side, though, we definitely have more interaction with the primary care side. Yeah. And I think one of the balances we often run with primary care is the shortness of breath consultations, which cardiology and pulmonary often like to point the finger in the other direction. And so my advice to primary care is... Uh, to accept that both are probably wrong and that it probably is a little bit of both <laughs> the lungs and the heart <laughs> causing their shortness of breath. What, so. what specialties do you work the closest with? Nephrology, definitely in the hospital. I'm in the ICU. Probably a third of patients through the ICU at some point require dialysis. So we work really closely with them. It works out pretty well because we both specialties tend to like things like acid-base disorders, as we have both had to learn about that in depth for our, our respective organs. And in the medical world, having a good relationship with your critical care trained surgeons makes a big difference. And there, there is a difference between a critical care trained surgeon and a, an otherwise general surgeon, because sometimes it's knowing when not to take the patient to the operating room, and sometimes knowing that it doesn't matter what is going on, we should just take this patient to the operating room. Those are probably the two most important specialties. I'm thinking GI slash hepatology for the cirrhotics and GI bleeds. As there's, I can do all the transfusing in the world for a variceal bleed, but unless they can fix it, it's not going to end well. So, Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for palm critical care? There are, there's some interesting, a few interesting ones that are somewhat clinically related. Often pulmonary gets involved with sort of high altitude medicine and or, which for whatever reason also includes diving, which is I yeah. guess sort of low altitude medicine. But those are things that people often sort of get side involved with. Personally, I've had some experience doing some traveling or training in in sort of resource poor environments and knowing how to provide critical care in those environments can be very handy. And I, you know, I mean, I think research, whether that's classified clinical or not, there's obviously just critical care is such a, a new specialty by comparison to most of the other medical subspecialties that there's still a ton that we just don't know about how to do things right. So we often get involved in both that as well as sort of quality initiatives and leadership through that. We're always trying to find how to do things better since there we, have, we find we have very little wiggle room with the patients themselves. So, What do you know now that you wish you knew going into palm critical care? Mm. I think the one thing that I probably didn't know as much early on about critical care is how how much time I would spend with families of dying patients 
which isn't to say I didn't think my patients would be dying, but I'm glad that that's something that I enjoy, that I can, that I enjoy having those conversations with patients, families about sort of end of life care and the expectations of what is going to happen. Because I, you know, I think most of our medical training leading up to and including residency and fellowship is, you know, find a problem, fix a problem, (laughs) (laughs) you know, diagnose the problem and fix it. And there's just so many of the time where, or so much of the time where we, we just can't, and it doesn't matter what we do, we're not going to fix it. And, you know, being able to have that reasoned conversation with patients who are or with people who are not your patient is really important. So, yeah, maybe that's the message to the primary care docs is have those discussions, no matter how healthy, how sick. Yes, yes. And, you know, thank goodness we can at least we can at least encourage that now without having it labeled as a death panel. So, yeah, yeah, that's definitely a good message have those conversations in clinic early, but recognize that they're flexible and people change right up until the last minute. So, yeah. What do you like the most about Palm Critical Care? There's always something to do. It's always a busy specialty. There's always going to be sick patients and acuity never stops because you, you get one patient better. There's going to be three waiting in line and that probably only holds true if you can sometimes leave and, and walk away for a little while. But A random question I've never asked before, but maybe I'll add it in. Is, is there any <laughs> disease process, any, anything that you see that you like treating more than anything else? Well, personally, I enjoy a challenging wean from the ventilator. I enjoy having to be a little bit creative with that. But, you know, I, we've all been sort of, I will say we've all been waiting this year for for our uh, our big flu hit to come in. Yeah. We I think that a lot of progress has been made over the last few years about sort of instituting a lot of the treatments for acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS as a complication of critical illness and sort of recognizing that early and treating it quickly and flu is definitely one of the big players that leads to that in a in a big way. So it actually, we just started to get our sort of influx of cases in the last week or so. And that one's, that flu is actually one of the diseases that, you know, we all know most of the symptoms of it, but man, it can just do anything later on. It can affect almost any organ system. So what do you like the least? Well, there's always three sick patients waiting. <laughs> <laughs> so you like that um, it's busy, but you don't like that it's do. busy. <laughs> well, the thing... I will say the thing that I like the least is that the ICU never closes. And that does, you know, you do, well, you have to know that if you, you're going to work in the ICU on Christmas and Thanksgiving and New Year's and all the other holidays at some point. And so that is, you have to know that going in. But, you know, the ICU patients don't get to go home. So maybe it's okay that you don't always either. Do you see any major changes coming to the field? We... I would say I think this has probably been growing over the last several years already, which is the inclusion of a lot of advanced practice providers, nurse practitioners and PAs in the ICU. Again, it because there's a shortage of critical care providers, 
It's a numbers problem that a number solution can help with. I don't see that changing anytime soon. But I would be hard-pressed to envision a situation where rationing of critical care comes into play, though everyone sort of feels like that may eventually have to happen. You know, it is a finite resource and the population keeps growing. So it's possible there will come a day where we just say, you know, I'm sorry, we can't provide critical care to your great grandmother who's 103 years old. But that's for another day for now. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a palm critical care doc? Absolutely. Any last words of wisdom for the medical student, maybe the internal medicine resident out there who's possibly interested in exploring this field? Yeah, we love to have you. So hook up with your local critical care doc for a rotation. It's a good time, even if it's busy. And we we recognize that you're not going to be immediately up to speed with all of the information overload that happens in the ICU. But we'd love to have you. We nearly universally love to teach and that doesn't stop. So, All right, there you have it again. That was Dr. Tom Bice, academic palm critical care physician. If you're interested in palm critical care, do what Tom said and go find a palm critical care doc to go shadow, go get introduced to the field, go get some exposure to see if it is right for you. One of the big, big takeaways that I had from this episode was that they, the typical student that loves everything, from what I've heard, is that they go into emergency medicine. They love a little bit of everything. And yet, you have this subsection of people, of students who also love the high acuity stuff. So a little bit of everything and the high acuity. Now, if you go back and listen to our emergency medicine physician uh, interview, which was a while ago, that was episode two, long time ago, you heard from that interview that the high acuity stuff is only a small percentage of an emergency medicine physician's job. So if you like the high acuity stuff, you like a little bit of everything, palm critical care might be the specialty for you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you have a specialty, if you have a physician you think would be great for me to interview here on Specialty Stories, let me know. Shoot me an email, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories.